Well, this morning we're in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 3 to 6 this morning of Matthew chapter 5. I called this message, The Blessed Broken. Because the text talks about the blessed condition of one who has been broken by God. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These words from Jesus Christ turn the world upside down. This is the exact opposite of what the world teaches. The world considers the proud in spirit to be blessed. They consider the happy to be blessed, not those who mourn. And the world sees meekness as weakness, and they definitely don't care much about righteousness. But the world is passing away, and the world is temporary, and the world is blind. They are blind to eternity. They are blinded to their true spiritual estate. And they're blinded to the glory of knowing God and Jesus Christ. The blessedness that Jesus talks about here is a blessedness that reaches beyond this world. It's an eternal blessedness. The blessedness that Jesus talks about here comes with eye salve to remove spiritual blindness. The blessed person sees themselves rightly And therefore, they see God rightly as well. And the promise of verse 8 applies to them. They will see God. The eight characteristics that Jesus describes here, poor in spirit, those who mourn, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, these eight characteristics are things that mark a true kingdom citizen. These are what marks one who will inherit the kingdom. And another way to say that would be that these are marks of a genuine Christian. If all eight of these describe you, you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ and you are blessed. If these things do not describe you, you are not blessed And the kingdom of heaven is not yours, and you shall not be comforted, and you shall not receive mercy, and you shall not see God. Now in our day, many people think that they are Christians, when in fact they are not. And even to say that, some who call themselves Christians aren't Christians is regarded as uncharitable. Right? Who are you to judge, Pastor Mike? But Jesus is the judge, and Jesus said in John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7.21, Jesus says these words, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone 
who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many signs and mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so we ask, who are these many who will say, Lord, Lord? Now this is not referring to the unbelieving people of the world. These people, whoever Jesus is talking about here, these are religious people who profess Jesus as Lord. And many of them, he says, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Many of them will go to hell because they do not have the eight characteristics of the blessed that we see in our passage. But in the words of Paul, if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. And so Jesus gave this sermon to warn the religious people of his day and especially his disciples so that they could not, so that they would not go to that place. He, he gave this sermon so that they could know, so that we could judge ourselves and know whether we belong to him or not. Jesus preached this message to warn false professors of their spiritual danger. He says in chapter 7 and verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter by it. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. There will be many, many people, Jesus says, who enter at the wide gate and walk along the wide path, and again, this is not speaking about the world. These are people who profess, profess Christ and they think that they have entered into the path of life, but many of them are on the way to destruction. Few of them are those who find life. And Grace Bible Fellowship, I don't want any of you for whose souls I will give an account. I don't want any of you to be among the many that we see in Matthew chapter 7. I've I've been in ministry long enough to see people who have uh, professed Christ, who have could explain the gospel, who seem to be eminent examples of a true Christian who were faithful in ministry, and I've seen them get saved. They were on the wide path, but then God awakened them and brought them to genuine salvation. And I've seen it go the other way as well, where people seem to be very much good, solid Christian people who then apostatize and leave the Lord and deny the Lord and show that they were never true believers to begin with. And so how do you avoid being one of the many that Jesus talks about? How can you be sure that you are one of the few who is on the path to life and not on the way to destruction. And the best way that I know is for you to take seriously Jesus' words in this Sermon on the Mount. Look at your life and ask yourself if these traits are realities in my life. And it's because that I I care for your souls that I'm going to often challenge you to examine yourself, whether you are truly in the faith, whether you are a believer. And, and as I do that in ministry together with you, 
I'm going to emphasize, and I think rightly, that a true Christian is one who is transformed. That the mark of a true Christian is a, a changed life. One who is born again is going to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? If Christ is in you, He will surely change your life. But sometimes we can look at ourselves and and we can think about our transformation and we can wonder, am I truly bearing spiritual fruit? Am I more like Christ than an unbeliever? Have I been transformed supernaturally by God's grace? And we can examine ourselves and we can get discouraged. I I want you to to turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit, and and maybe you're like me, and maybe you kind of sometimes go through, and you look at the fruit of the Spirit, and you wonder, how could I be truly saved in this state that I'm in? Look at the fruit of the Spirit. It says, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And have you ever looked at this passage and examined yourself by the fruit of the Spirit and, and did something like this? Well, the first one is love. But I am such a selfish person. And joy, and here I am, I'm already a little bit discouraged. Well, what about peace? Well, I'm so often anxious and distracted. What about patience? And you think, well, how long is it going to take for me to start bearing the fruit of the Spirit? What about kindness? Well, not last week, not this week. Goodness, I'm so bad, right? You go, what about faithfulness? Hardly. How about gentleness? Well, I'm harsh and rough and mean and, you know, I just blew it when I talked to my wife earlier this morning or something like that. What about self-control? I have so many desires and I often give in to them and I don't see myself controlling myself and you get discouraged as you look at these things and you say, how can I be a genuine Christian? And if you ever have felt that way, then I think that what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is He calls people to look at their lives and see if they're truly a Christian. I think this can actually be very encouraging for you this morning because Jesus starts at the bottom of the barrel. You know, the blessed person doesn't begin as an oak of righteousness that perfectly bears the nine fruits of the Spirit and that those fruits are just luscious and hanging on every branch because the the blessed person is one who is poor in spirit. The first sign of spiritual life is the realization that you can't grow any fruit on your own and that you are nothing and that apart from the Holy Spirit, you have nothing whatsoever to offer God. And this is good news for us Because acknowledging our barrenness is actually a sign of God's blessing in our lives. It's only when we are low in our own eyes that God can work with us and use it. And it's precisely our lowness 
that shows our blessedness. You are never so blessed as when you see and confess your lack. And so the lower you go, the higher you are. Jesus says, blessed are the broken. And here, I believe, is where so many enter wrong, where so many begin on the wrong path. Many think that they come to Christ, but in reality, they don't because they skip over this crucial peace. That is, they don't come broken. They don't see their poverty. They don't dig deep enough into their hearts to see the depravity that's there. They don't mourn over their sin and they're not humbled and they're not meeked. And without this preparatory work in their hearts, they think that they have something to offer God. They think that they're pleasing God when in fact they are still in their sins. Remember that the gospel according to Jesus Christ began with a call to repentance. And until we see our sinfulness, our depravity, our wretchedness, our inability, our spiritual poverty, until we see those things, Christ will never be as precious in our sight as He truly is. Christ would have us forsake all and follow after Him. He would be our all, but He won't be prized by our sinful hearts until we see our desperate need of a Savior. And so here's why brokenness is a blessing, because our brokenness drives us to Jesus Christ. The broken soul will take Christ on his own terms. The poor in spirit must have Christ or they die. That soul that is poor in spirit, that mourns, that is meek, that hungers and thirsts for righteousness will not be satisfied with anything less than true salvation. And so I want to show you the blessed state of the broken. And I want to do it this morning by looking at the first four Beatitudes in the passage we read. We're going to call this four characteristics of the blessed. Four characteristics of the blessed. And this should help you examine yourself. Are you what Jesus describes as a true kingdom citizen, a true son of his kingdom, a true believer? And if you can say yes, then I want you to be encouraged today because you are blessed regardless of how you feel. And if no, then this is an opportunity for you to enter at the narrow gate. You see, if you fall short of these things, it becomes an opportunity for you to repent and to believe on Jesus Christ. And so four characteristics of the blessed. Number one, you are blessed if you are poor in spirit. You are blessed if you are poor in spirit. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first characteristic is poor in spirit. Now the Greeks had two words to talk about somebody who was poor. The first word for a poor person is a person who worked 
uh, for their daily bread. Such a one was kind of on a, a paycheck by paycheck thing, and that paycheck would need to be at the end of the day, or they wouldn't have enough money to buy their bread for that next day for their work. And so such a person would work typically for a denarius a day, and if they didn't get hired that day, they would go without bread. And so a, a poor person in that first sense was a, a day laborer. They were poor, but they were still able to earn a living. The second word for poor describes somebody who was so poor that they could not work for their own living. This person was the beggar, whether because they were unable to work or they were crippled in some kind of way and they couldn't work. This was somebody in abject poverty who could not live unless others supplied their needs. The poor in this sense was dependent on alms. They were dependent on somebody giving to them. And it's that second word for poor that is used in our text. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The first poor had nothing extra. The second type of poor, the one that Jesus describes here, has nothing at all. But their poverty is not a material poverty. It's not like they're financially poor. They are poor in spirit. And this means they are dependent on somebody else's generosity in the spiritual realm. This person has nothing at all to commend them to God. They are broke, spiritually speaking. They have nothing. They are spiritually bankrupt. The poor in spirit person looks at what they are in the spiritual realm and they conclude, unless God provides for me, which I do not deserve. Unless God provides for me, I have no hope. The poor person was one who who crouched before his superiors out of a sense of his abjectness and would would beg alms in a, a position something like this. And in the same way, the spiritually poor person is really like the the tax collector in Luke chapter 18 and verse 13. The tax collector standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so the spiritually poor person, out of a sense of their own poverty, crouches before God. And like the tax collector is even ashamed almost to lift his eyes towards God because he recognizes that he is not worthy and he cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See how he is afraid even to draw near or even to lift up his eyes. Because unlike the Pharisee in the parable, this tax collector realizes that he has nothing to offer. All that he has to bring to God is his sin. And if he has anything to his account, it's a debit and not a credit. And so all this person brings is sin and a request for mercy. That's the sense of poor in spirit. Now the opposite of this kind of a poverty of spirit would be a wealth of spirit. Somebody who thought that they were doing well, spiritually speaking. This is the person who thinks that they're, they're really helping out God by serving Him. They think that God must be blessed by their service. That God, you're doing God a favor by serving Him and, and working for Him. <clears throat> this is what Jesus accused the Laodicean church of, Revelation 3, 17, for, I, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, 
not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The Laodicean church thought they were rich. They thought they were doing quite well, but in reality, they weren't even saved. They were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They were blind to their true spiritual state. They couldn't see their true condition. This reminds me of John Bunyan, the the author of Pilgrim's Progress, before he got saved. Um, John Bunyan, before he actually genuinely got saved, he had this period of reformation. There was a time in his life where he was the worst sinner in town, and he was regarded as the ringleader of a, a group of sinners. But there was a a time where he started to be convicted over his sin and he started to reform his life and he started to go to church and he started to put away sins like drunkenness and cursing and he was he was faithful in church attendance and they made him the, the ringer of the bell at the church to call people to church. And so this former drunkard and, and vile sinner was now a regular church-going guy, and his neighbors started to say, wow, John, you really have reformed. You're just such a great guy now. This is amazing, this transformation that's happened in your life. And John was getting proud, and, and he said in his, in his autobiography that he thought at that time that he pleased God as well as any man in England. But he wasn't even saved. And later on, as God started to really show him the corruption of his heart, he was became afraid to ring the bell because he thought God in his wrath would make that bell fall upon him. And so he would ring it from as far away as he could get. And then he finally gave up ringing the bell because he realized that, that he was under God's wrath. You see, he came to see that his reformation was only external and not internal. He came to see that his religious works didn't please God at all. And he realized that his good efforts couldn't take away even a single sin. And even more, he began to see that even in his best works, his heart was corrupted by sin. And he became poor in spirit and got truly saved. And so can you see the difference between these two types of people? The poor in spirit person needs God's help. They see their need because they see their sin and they see their heart. But the person who thinks they're rich is the opposite. They don't really see the true condition of their hearts. They don't really see their sin and so they don't see their need. Now in reality, every single person in the world is actually poor in spirit because nobody has anything that can that can that they can offer to God. Nobody can please God unless they unless they are clothed in the perfect white garments of Jesus Christ's righteousness. But the poor in spirit person is the one who actually recognizes their true condition whereas others are blind to it. And so to help you cultivate maybe a a poverty of spirit, I just want to point out a few things. First is, our God is a holy God. Our God is a holy God. He is infinitely holy. He is completely devoted to His own glory, and He is absolutely separate from any moral corruption. 
Even the seraphim, the burning ones, the angels before his throne, they cover their faces as they hover before his presence because the the sight of God's majesty is too much even for their pure eyes. In his holiness, God has never had so much as an impure thought. He has never had an unloving thought. He has never even so much as had a sinful idea come into his mind. All his thoughts and desires and actions are entirely free of sin. And second, this holy God is our judge. His judgment is based on the only standard that he has, which is his own holiness and righteousness. Part of God's holiness is his hatred for sin. God hates sin. If God is holy and devoted to his own glory, then he must be against anything that is against his glory, which means that God is against sin. And so in order to have fellowship with this holy God, we need a perfect holiness ourselves. In order to have fellowship with a God like this, we would need to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. And to fail to do that for even one moment would bar us from God's presence forever. Now, if we can't understand how God could demand so high of expectations, then either we haven't grasped his holiness or we haven't grasped the depravity of our own hearts or both. You see, God is worthy of our complete devotion and love. And to sin is to say that God is not worthy. To sin is to say that something other than God deserves our love. God is good. And He is the standard of goodness. Anything outside of God's standard of goodness is contrary to God. And because God is good, He hates what is not good. And what is not good in this universe must be punished. And that is bad news for us because we are not good. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul says, as it is written, and he quotes the Old Testament, and he says, none is righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. In case somebody thought that they were escaping none, he says, no, not one. No one understands, verse 11. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so we are all under sin. And even our best works, our prayers, our preaching, our service, our our love for the Lord, even the best of what we do is tainted with sin. And so we have no hope of offering God anything Our only hope is in Jesus Christ, who himself earned a perfect righteousness that he can give us through faith. Even our faith is too weak to put any trust in it. We are spiritual beggars who know that unless God grants us what we need to be in right relationship with him, we would never be able to approach him. And if by grace God opens our eyes to see our poverty in this way, then we are blessed. If God has opened your eyes to see your poverty in this way, that you have nothing to offer God, then you are blessed. Because it's the poor man who really sees his need of a Savior. It's the poor man who will take hold of Christ by faith. 
Like the blind man on the road when Jesus passed by who cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The poor man cries out, Lord, have mercy on me. But the blessed person goes even beyond just a mere recognition of their spiritual poverty. They not only recognize it, but they mourn their state. And so number two, you are blessed if you mourn over sin. You are blessed if you mourn over sin. You are blessed if you mourn over sin. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, when we start thinking about this verse, we, we want to ask ourselves, well, why are these people mourning and why are they blessed? I think it's pretty obvious that Jesus is not talking here about just mourning in general. If, if Jesus is talking about just mourning in general, then he's, what he's saying basically is, you are happy if you're sad, which is nonsense. These beatitudes need to be understood in their context, the context both of the Beatitudes and the context of the entire sermon, the blessed person here is blessed really because they will be comforted at a future time. The blessed person will be comforted because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so they will enter the kingdom that time when God will comfort his people. And so the blessed person is blessed because they are saved. And so why do they mourn? Well, they mourn their poverty of spirit. They mourn their lack of righteousness. They mourn over their sin. And this mourning over sin is in a twofold sense. First, there's a mourning over one's own sin. There's a mourning over one's own sin. True repentance comes with tears, or at least with grief. Paul calls it godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. A truly repentant person grieves over sin, and this grief is not merely because they see that their sin is worthy of punishment. A criminal might grieve their prison sentence without grieving their crime. A truly repentant person is different because a truly repentant person grieves their state as a sinner and not just that they deserve punishment. Mourning for sin is chiefly mourning for wrong done towards God. David said in Psalm 51, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You see, he recognizes his sin. I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. And then he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He recognizes that his sin is done chiefly against God. Thomas Watson said, godly sorrow is chiefly for the trespass against God. So that even if there was no conscience to smite, no devil to accuse, no hell to punish, yet the soul would still be grieved because of prejudice done towards God. Godly sorrow shows itself to be ingenuous because 
when a Christian knows that he is out of gunshot of hell and shall never be damned, yet still he grieves for sinning against that free grace which has pardoned him, end quote. And so this morning recognizes that sin is against God and it grieves the offense to God more than the punishment for the offense. And such mourning sees that God is worthy and that sin is unworthy. And so a sad heart then is blessed because the grief reveals a turning of the affections. Once there was joy in sin. Once sin was a a delightful thing, but now it is a sorrowful thing. Now it is a cursed thing. Now it is a wretched thing. And this sorrow over one's own sin then leads into another type of sorrow. It's over sin in general, sin in the world. Because if we truly love the Lord and if we truly love others, we will grieve the sins of the world. Should we rejoice when God is dishonored and disregarded? Should we rejoice when multitudes are without Christ? Do we not mourn when iniquity abounds? Our prayer, according to Matthew 6, 9, is hallowed be your name. We want to see God glorified in this world. And so when God's name is slighted, we mourn. We grieve over sin in the world and over the multitudes going to hell. We grieve over sin in the church and the lack of conformity to Christ's likeness in God's people. Psalm 119, 137 says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And again, that grief really begins with a a recognition of sin in our own lives and hearts, and then it grieves it in the world as well. Now, as we move into the next characteristic of the blessed, we see that the blessed person begins to be an instrument in the Lord's hand. You see, we're not only poor in spirit and those who mourn, but now we implore God to, to work through us to effect change in the world. Number three, then, you are blessed if you are meek. You are blessed if you are meek. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meek isn't a word that we use very often anymore. Um, this word is, is tied to a low view of oneself, just like it would be to be poor in spirit and to mourn over sin. So the, the meek person has a low view of oneself. One lexicon said, quote, it pertains, not, it pertains to not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. And then it gives you ways to translate it. You could translate it gentle, humble, considerate, or meek in the older sense of the word, they say. Meek in the older, favorable sense. You see, meek is not weak. A meek person may be very strong, but they don't use their strength to dominate others. Meekness is tied to humility. The humble person sees themselves properly, and doesn't seek to raise themselves up. The meek person is one who is under God's control, and they don't fight to get their own way. They don't break out in a rage. And I think it'll be helpful to understand what meek is by turning to Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is what Jesus quotes from when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so let's turn back to Psalm 37.
What does meekness, meekness look like? Psalm 37, verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. <clears throat> now there's a, a contrast in Psalm 37 between the meek person and the wicked person. And the, the whole psalm is really an encouragement to meekness. The psalm teaches God's people how to respond and how to live in a wicked world. And so verse 1 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, for it, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And so the meek person is one who trusts the Lord. He waits on the Lord. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. The meek person does good as they have opportunity, but they really leave the ultimate resolution of their problems with the Lord. The meek person, and this one's important, the meek person doesn't think they deserve better than they're getting. The meek person accepts what God brings into their lives and they're content to delight in the Lord and to trust in Him and to receive their reward in the future. The, the meek person doesn't think they deserve better than they're getting. The meek person isn't envious of others because they don't think they're the most important person. Jesus himself was meek. Matthew eleven twenty nine. he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, or I am meek and lowly in heart, or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus doesn't domineer. He isn't rough with us, even though he would still have us carry his yoke. And, and the meek person is one who depends on God and not on themselves. And that's why God can use them in the world. Now, the best illustration that I've heard of, of meekness is that of a wild horse. Now, I don't know a lot about horses and, and farming and stuff like that, but a wild horse is, is strong and even dangerous. If you try to ride that thing, you're likely going to get bucked off or kicked in the head or, or I don't even know what they do, bite you or whatever. You're, it's not going to go good for you if you try to ride a wild horse. But if you can catch that horse and you can train that horse and you can meek that horse, the horse is no less powerful. But now that same horse that would have kicked you in the head, if you even tried to get near it, is now going to let you ride it into battle. It's now going to let you put a little child on that thing and you can give the child a ride on that horse. It's still a powerful horse, but it's under control. It has been meeked. And so in the same way, the meek Christian is no longer a wild man. He is no longer, uh, uh, he is, he is no longer, 
uh, crazy, he is now under God's control. He now responds to God's direction, just like with a, a horse, just a little pull on the reins, you can lead that horse. And now God can lead this Christian person with just a word. And he doesn't have to beat you on the stick like a, a wild donkey to get you to do what you, God calls you to do. It's just all it takes is just a, a little bit of direction from the word of God and the meek person follows it. it it's like, as John Bunyan illustrated it once, if, if a man has a broken arm, now, even though that man at one point was so tough and strong, now all it takes is for you to just touch that arm and ooh, that hurts. And he, he, and you can just lead that man. You can get that man to go wherever you want now. But when he had a strong arm, you had to strong arm the man to get him to go. And so a, a Christian is broken like a wild horse. They don't fight with men and they now submit to God. Their power is under God's control. And all of us really could likely grow in this characteristic. All of us could be more meek, I think, than we are. But it's helpful to realize here that this is the mark of every true believer, an extent of meekness. Because a true believer no longer considers their own thoughts and desires as first and foremost. A true believer submits to God and submits to Christ and wants to follow Him and obey Him and submit to Him. And that is a blessed state indeed. Now the fourth and final characteristic of the blessed, at least for this morning, is number four, you are blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You are blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Like the second beatitude, this one probably has both a personal and a corporate application. The the righteousness in view here is not imputed righteousness. It's not justification that this person is hungering and thirsting after, although that's a wonderful thing. This is really a hunger and a thirst to live rightly. These blessed people, they want to do what is right in the world. In other words, there's a desire in them to honor God in this world. And it's no small desire. This is a, an overwhelming desire. The feelings of hunger and thirst are at the core of man's desires. If these desires are not met, if we don't eat and we don't drink, then we cannot live. And in the same way, the person described here wants to do right and they can't bear to go without righteousness. There's a longing in the child of God to be like Christ, to be holy, to do good, to live righteously. And like the other characteristics, this desire is not natural to man. This describes a saved person. Here's a saved person. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now this isn't a desire to do righteousness or to be righteous in order to earn favor with God. This is a, a, a desire that, that corresponds with being poor in spirit and the recognition that we can do nothing. This is just a desire to do right because it is right. This is a desire to glorify God because God is worthy of glory. 
We have nothing to offer God, and the broken believer just wants to please God because of what God has already done for him. Because he's already blessed, he now wants to live in a Christ-like way. Now this desire, by the way, is a very Christ-like desire. Jesus said in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus' food was to do the Father's will in a similar way, a Christian's food, in a spiritual way, a Christian's food is to live righteously in this world. Now this longing for righteousness, if it's in the heart, is going to manifest itself in the person's life. Now, if you came over to the Hovland house sometime between 11.30 and 12.30 in the afternoon, pretty much any day of the week, all of a sudden, one after the other of the Hovland boys starts hovering around the kitchen because it's getting near lunchtime and we're starting to get that, that hungry feeling, right? And so all of a sudden, and, and it must drive Jody just nuts, she, we start hovering around the kitchen and sometimes she doesn't want to tell us what she, uh, she's making for lunch or whatever, but we're hovering around and she knows oh, these guys want some lunch and so she will maybe tell us, what we're having for lunch or what her plan is. And there's like this magnetic force that, that draws us to the kitchen around 11.30, 12.30 in the afternoon. And it's because we're getting hungry around that time. A hunger for righteousness is going to manifest itself similarly. There's going to be a draw in the person's heart towards those things that cause us to grow. And so there's going to be a draw in the heart of the believer towards the hearing of the Word of God. There's going to be a draw in the heart of the believer towards the reading of the Word of God. They're going to cry out in prayer for God to bless them because they want to to pray, which is another way in which God makes us more righteous and makes us more like Christ. And there's going to be a draw in them to have fellowship with other believers and not just coffee and donuts, but to really talk about the things of the Lord. There's going to be a a love for that kind of a conversation that helps a person to grow spiritually. And so there's this, this similar kind of a draw because there's a hunger for righteousness and there's a thirst for righteousness and we want to grow as believers. Now, this will be true of every believer. There's going to be something in them that moves them towards obedience. There's going to be a desire for spiritual growth. Now, I think it's helpful here again to think about the opposite of this hungering and thirsting for righteousness. What would be the opposite of hungering and thirsting for righteousness? It would be somebody who thinks they've already arrived, maybe. Somebody who who doesn't seem to think that they need any more righteousness in their life. They're happy with the level of righteousness that they already have. Or maybe this would be somebody who just doesn't even care at all. Somebody who sees, maybe they even see that they're not righteous, that they're living in a way that dishonors God in their life, but they just really don't care at all. It doesn't bother them much that they're unrighteous. And what can we say about such a person? If you can live in such a way that you recognize that your life doesn't honor God in some area and you don't really care, I don't even really know what to say to you. All I can say is that is not a good sign at all. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, How can we who died to sin still live in it? If we have died to sin, if we have been 
a, a saved person, there's a, there's a hatred of sin in our lives and a desire to put it off and to be done with it. And so a real Christian mourns their sin and wants to put it off. A real Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness. A real Christian rejoices in the knowledge that one day they will no longer be able to sin and they will, they will long for that wonderful day when they will never sin against God again. John, 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. So as children of God, there's this hope that we will be like our Lord Jesus Christ when we see Him, when He appears. And then John says, verse 3, everyone who, who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. There's a, a sense in which a believer has this recognition that one day I'm going to be like Christ. And because of that, even now in this life, I purify myself. I, I, pr- I pursue those things through which I grow. The hope of a future righteousness makes us long for it even in this life. And so we've seen here four characteristics of the blessed person. You are blessed if you are poor in spirit. You are blessed if you mourn over sin. You are blessed if you are meek. And you are blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And these are lowly characteristics. Every one of these things describes somebody who recognizes their need. These are people who are needy. These are people who are dependent on God. Now again, this is not what the world calls blessed. But God says that such a one is blessed. If you have these characteristics, and I think if you have these characteristics, I think you're going to mourn your, the, the fact that you don't have them as fully as you would like to have them. I think a, a true Christian recognizes, I could be poorer in spirit. I could mourn my sin more. I, I, I could be more meek. I could be more hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And even that then makes us more poor in spirit. And we say, I have nothing to offer God. But such a one who is in that state is blessed. That word blessed means happy. But not in the the superficial kind of shallow way. It means that the blessed person is in a happy situation. They are in an enviable position. Or or as sometimes people say, they're sitting good. They're sitting good. They're in a place that others should wish themselves in. Uh, Another way that we could try to translate that word is to say to them, congratulations. Grace Bible Fellowship, if this is you, congratulations. You are poor in spirit. You are blessed. And if you recognize your spiritual poverty, if you mourn over your sin, the sin in your life and the sin in the world, if you are meek so that you depend on the Lord and that you trust in Him and you wait on Him, And if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you are favored by God. Now, you probably don't feel favored. You you might not feel happy, but you are in a good place. You probably feel like you aren't broken enough or you're not dependent enough. But if these things are true of you, you are indeed blessed because only God's gracious working in your heart could accomplish these things in your life. 
Because these characteristics describe one to whom the kingdom belongs. And if this is you, you will be comforted. And you will inherit the earth. That is, you will reign with Christ when he comes and establishes his kingdom. And you will be there when the new heaven and the new earth come down. And you will dwell with God forever. And on that day, you will be satisfied with righteousness. And you will see God and you will worship him forever and ever in utter joy and gladness. And so, brothers and sisters, even though in this world our estate is a lowly estate, we recognize that we will be blessed in the world to come. We are favored because God has great things in store for us in eternity. And God himself delights in these spiritually bankrupt people because now they treasure his salvation And now they receive his word. And now they are prepared to accept his gifts and to magnify his grace. And I want to just close with some scripture here. Psalms and Isaiah speak about such a one that they're called in these contexts in Psalm and Isaiah. It's called the person with a broken and a contrite heart. And listen to what God says about such a one. Psalm 51.17 The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is a, a sacrifice of praise in God's eyes if we have a broken and contrite spirit. And if you are like that today, God will not despise you. Psalm 34.18 The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Isaiah 57, 17, 57, 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 66, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And Jesus has a special charge from the Father for such a one who is humble and contrite, who is poor in spirit and brokenhearted. And Isaiah 61, verse 1, this is really the Lord, the the Messiah speaking. Isaiah 61, 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim the liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so Jesus is 
sent to do this very thing, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who are captive, to proclaim the Lord's favor, to comfort those who mourn, and to give us this gladness instead of our mourning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word and this encouragement, this this way that we can recognize what a true believer is. And we pray for those who are here in our midst today who are not saved, maybe who don't even recognize the sin in their hearts. We pray that you would give them that recognition that they may be saved. We pray that you would comfort the brokenhearted. And those of us who are indeed your children, that you would give us assurance to know that we are your children because of these characteristics in our lives. We pray now that you would bless us as we participate in the Lord's Supper, that you would glorify yourself as we remember what you did for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.